Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In the fall of 1777, in the forests of the Hudson Valley, an empire was lost and a new nation was born. At the Battle of Saratoga, as the collection of maneuvers and armed encounters on those wooded hills has come to be known, the Continental Army, nominally led by Horatio Gates, defeated a British army led by General John Burgoyne. This decisive American victory did not end the War of Independence, but fundamentally changed its dynamics, eliminating the threat of invasion from Canada and convincing foreign observers that the American colonists might just win. Within months, France agreed to an alliance with the United States, and independence went from a fragile dream to a concrete possibility. In his new book, The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, Kevin Weddle views the decisive battle in its overall historical and strategic context. More than a sweeping narrative of the fight, though it definitely is that, it is also a closely examined study of the art and science of strategic leadership. Weddle analyzes how all the main players, from Gentleman Johnny and Horatio Gates to their respective commanders, Sir William Howe and George Washington, as well as their political masters in Philadelphia and Whitehall, to consider the forces that shaped the battle, but also the decisions that determined its outcome. Here at A Better Peace, we delight in showcasing the work of colleagues at the War College, so it is a special treat to have Kevin Weddle here to discuss his book, the 2021 winner of the Gilder Lerman Prize in American History. Kevin J. Weddle is Professor of Military Theory and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College, a West Point graduate. He served in the Army for 28 years on active duty in command and staff positions that included Operations Desert Storm and Enduring Freedom before retiring as a colonel and joining the faculty here at the War College. In addition to The Complete Victory, he is also the author of Lincoln's Tragic Admiral, which won the William E. Colby Military Writers Award. Uh, one of the most brilliant colleagues we have here at the War College and a fantastic writer. We are delighted to welcome Kevin Weddle to A Better Peace. Welcome, Kevin. Well, thanks, Ron. I'm really, uh, really, really happy to uh, to be here with you today to talk about the book and also to be on this great podcast, which uh, I've enjoyed for several years now. Awesome. Well, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And it was a lot of fun to read the book. You know, the, I, I was thinking about starting this conversation with the, the old chestnut, right? Every school child knows that the Battle of Saratoga was the turning point of the American Revolution. But I'm not sure we can say that anymore. I mean, we could certainly say that it was the turning point of the revolution. I don't know if every school child knows that uh, as well as they might have. Right. But for a story that, you know, can usually be reduced to just a sentence or two in any discussion of the revolution, right? You're able to, to, to draw this out into a much meatier narrative. And so I am curious, what led you to decide to, to zero in on the Battle of Saratoga and to write a book of this type? Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm primarily a Civil War historian, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, but 
Um, I've always been interested in the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolutionary period was one of my minor fields of study when I got my PhD. And um, also when I was uh, a cadet at West Point and when I was there as a faculty member in the history department as a captain, um, I really, really got interested in, in the American Revolution because when you're at West Point, you're surrounded, literally surrounded by the American Revolution sure. because there's there's fort Revolutionary War fortifications all around uh, in the hills above uh, West Point and on the plain. And there's the monuments and there's the river and there's the mountains and, you know, all of that. And it really got me interested in the American Revolution, which I hadn't really been up to that point. And then, of course, I had to teach the American Revolution uh, because I taught the uh, the military history right. uh, course at West Point. So but I never really, really got to know it very much, but I, I knew I found it very interesting. And so I was asked at one point to. Um, prepare a proposal, a book proposal on uh, uh, on Saratoga for the Pivotal Moments in American History series at Oxford University Press. So I jumped at the opportunity, again, having always been interested in the American Revolution, and I wanted to branch out a little bit from the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. So so I was fortunate enough that they accepted my proposal, and then uh, so I launched on my... Uh, uh, my journey to <laughs> understand the Saratoga campaign and all of its all of its uh, areas of complexity, which are are very many. Indeed. Well, and I, uh, the questions you always want to ask an author uh, is, uh, how long did it take? And and <laughs> and and is the shape that the book ended up taking the shape that you expected it to take when you started? Well, it certainly isn't the shape that my editor expected <laughs> it to be. Uh, he, if if you looked at any of the other uh, books in the series, I think there's there's almost twenty in the series now. Most of them are fairly thin, you know, uh, brief coverages of these particular topics. Not sure. all of them, uh, but most of them. And I think that's what he really wanted for Saratoga. But once I started getting into it and I really you know, realized that Saratoga can't be boiled down to the final two battles uh, at the end, it was, there was really so much involved yeah. uh, that it, it just started taking on a life of its own and became... <laughs> Uh, quite a bit, uh, quite a bit bigger project, and so it took a long, long time, way too long, um, probably about twelve years uh, total uh, to to do it. Now, part of that, there were there were times that I had to take off for for personal issues um, and, and things like that, but. Uh, but it took a long time. Sure. Uh, so I was fortunate to have a very patient editor. <laughs> pa patient editors are, are are a gift of the gods. That's for sure. Yes, yes, but but as editors will say, is that the authors who, however long they take, eventually deliver prize winning books are also something kind of special too. So you know, it's like it's a, a long story is not so bad as long as it has a happy ending, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> but um, there's there's two different angles. Uh, that interests me about this conversation. I want to talk about the battle and I also want to talk about some of the broader lessons that you draw mm -hmm. from it. Sure. And I want to start with the, the, the broader lesson is you, you talk in this idea of that the, the, the story of Saratoga is a story of strategic leadership. And you especially talk about this concept that you borrow from uh, Bernard Montgomery, right? The concept mm -hmm. of grip, that a good mm -hmm. commander has grip, um, which uh, you know sounds a little bit like Clausewitz's uh, coup de lie, 
which it, uh, it does. we have to reference yeah. Clausewitz because we both are under contract to the U.S. Army War College. Right, right. right. But um, but I wanted you to, to talk about um, sort of what grip is, but also how how you see grip functioning as a as a measure of, of leadership success during the Saratoga campaign. Sure. Um, I, I actually came across this when I was working on uh, my course mm-hmm. uh, at the War College. And I have a World War II case study in that course. And I was reading Montgomery. I've read a lot of Montgomery stuff, but I, I came across this notion of grip. And for Monty, his notion of grip was a commander who had a, a, uh, a firm grasp on uh, you know, all of the kind of nuts and bolts things about command. He understood where his logistical trains were. He understood exactly how many soldiers he had and where they were and, and, and things like that. Uh, but, but I thought, well, that's the sort of thing that every commander should, should have mm-hmm. automatically. So I wanted to expand that more into the the Clausewitzian notion of genius, and uh, to a to a commander who not only has that the Montgomerian grip, but also a commander who can who has the vision to figure uh, to to understand how a campaign will play out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to think ahead about where he needs to move his army from point A to point B to get into the best possible position or during at the tactical level during an actual battle, when is the right time to commit your reserves or, you know, something along those lines. So it's, it's something, it's more uh, intuitive Mm -hmm. uh, than the, than the Montgomery notion of grip. And then I wanted to apply that at at the strategic level, the operational level and the tactical, all levels of war uh, to, to these main characters on, on both sides. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's what I wanted to do with this this notion of grip, yeah. and and it it fit into the 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 two uh, major threads that I I tried to weave throughout the entire narrative, which was as you already said the 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 whole notion of leadership, mm-hmm. uh, especially senior level leadership, and also uh, strategy development as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's what I find interesting about it as well. People who perhaps have a, a glancing uh, understanding of Saratoga, right? They will they will probably remember the names of Gates and Burgoyne. Sure. Um, but but you're able to relate what Burgoyne is trying to do, and what Gates is trying to do, uh, to the actions of their uh, the real or nominal commanders, right? So Hal down in New York, who just, who uh, embarks on his campaign in Philadelphia in the summer of 1777. But also George Washington. I mean, one of the interesting things about a lot, I think, the way that Saratoga is talked about a lot is Washington doesn't show up because he's busy someplace else. But you're able to explain the role that Washington plays strategically in Saratoga, and uh, and I'd like I'd like I think our listeners would find that kind of interesting. So could you explain sort of why we need to sort of read George Washington into the story of the Battle of Saratoga? Right, um, and and Ron, you you set it up perfectly. I think um, most people, you know, Washington's doing something else. Right. I mean, he's doing he's 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 conducting the the Philadelphia campaign, or he's involved in the Philadelphia campaign during when when all these other things are happening three hundred miles away uh, up uh, north of Albany. Uh, but as I read Washington's papers, uh, I found that he was knee deep in the Saratoga campaign mm-hmm. from. From the day it started, really, um, and actually, I, I critique him pretty strongly uh, for his lack of involvement in the Northern Theater before the campaign begins. But once the campaign begins, 
uh, Ticonderoga Falls, and it's a huge shock to the American system, right. uh, both the population and the military and Congress. Um, it's a huge shock. And so he he gets involved and he gets heavily involved. So he acts. And, and what I do is I, I compare his actions as commander in chief with uh, General Sir William Howe's actions as commander in chief. And they're very, very different. Mm-hmm. So Washington um, starts off after Ticonderoga by kind of calming General Schuyler down, who is the commander of the Northern Department uh, in, in the early phases of the campaign, gives him very sound advice. And almost immediately, he starts sending up key leaders to help him out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very clear uh, to Washington, I think, very early on that Schuyler is kind of out of his depth. Um, he, uh, he almost panics uh, after Ticonderoga. At least that's the impression that Washington and Congress are getting from his reports uh, back from the Northern Department. And so Washington wants to, I think, kind of prop him up a little bit, kind of put some steel in the backbone. So he sends up some key leaders to help him out. The, the most famous, of course, is Benedict Arnold, right. uh, his argu- arguably the most dynamic combat commander the, uh, the Americans had. So he sends Benedict Arnold up there to help out uh, Schuyler. And then he also, it's less well-known, but he also sends up uh, uh, Major General Benjamin Lincoln. Benjamin Lincoln is a, um, he's from Massachusetts. He's a solid guy. But more importantly, Washington knew that he was very well liked by the militia Mm. and trusted by the militia, as was Benedict Arnold. Right. So he sends those two two guys up there because he also knows that Schuyler does not get along with the with the militia. Uh, most militia forces and New Englanders do not like Schuyler at all. So he sends Benjamin Lincoln and Arnold up there to kind of fill the gaps uh, that Schuyler lacks, mm-hmm. uh, some of the gaps in his his capability. And then he also sends up key reinforcements. Uh, the most famous of which, of course, is. Um, uh, Colonel Daniel Morgan and his his riflemen. So when I when I talk about uh, Daniel Morgan, I you know think about Daniel Morgan like SEAL Team Six, <laughs> you know, or Delta Force. Right. You know, everybody wants them, but there's only one to go around. So he sends his most elite force up to help out the uh, uh, the Northern Department up there. So he's 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 sacrificing some key leaders. Sacrificing. I mean, he's willing to send those guys away from the main army. Uh, from the main army up to help out um, Schuyler. So he's acting as a true commander in chief. He's looking at the Northern department. He's looking at his own situation, uh, which is very, very difficult, uh, very challenging situation. And he has down in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania, uh, trying to figure out what Howe is doing. Uh, but he's acting as a true commander in chief. Uh, whereas Howe, he basically ignores what's going on for the most part up in the uh, the north, up the Hudson River. Um, even when Burgoyne comes into his area of operations and how technically is responsible for Burgoyne, once he once he gets down to Ticonderoga, he basically ignores him and instead is focused, his laser focus is on Philadelphia, taking right. Philadelphia. Right. And, and that's one of those things, once again, that you know people who, uh, and I remember being confused about this as a student of the Revolutionary War when I first read about it, right, is that the the idea was somehow there was going to be this uh, uh, concentration on Albany and then it doesn't happen, right? That Howe decides that, no, actually, I'm going to take Philadelphia because it's the capital and this could end the war. Um, and or I'm going to I want to destroy Washington's army. And so right. by, 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 by threatening Philadelphia, I'm going to bring Washington out. 
Right. Um, and that, of course, puts into context, right, Washington's troubles at Brandywine or at Germantown, that even though you know they, they are technically defeats, um, they are the, the Washington wins because the army's not destroyed. And, and right. Howe ends up stuck in Philadelphia. Right. And he has to figure out what he's going to do next. Right, right, exactly. And the the story of Burgoyne, is, I think, is interesting because Burgoyne was liked by his troops. Very much And so. was a very brave man. In fact, you even yes. point out that one of the problems is he might have been a little too close to the fighting at key moments instead of staying right. back. Right. Um, which always raises all those difficult questions, right? It's it's easy to imagine, right, that the 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 soldier who is liked by his troops, who's who's fun to be around and who's brave, should win. But no, actually Horatio Gates wins. And I don't think Horatio Gates was any of those three things. No. <laughs> he no. I think uh uh, I, you know, some reviewers have uh, reviewed the book and said, well, he's too much of a Gates apologist. I'm, I, <laughs> I, I don't think I'm a Gates apologist. I think I think what happened with Gates is uh, when he was when when Schuyler was relieved, primarily because Schuyler, who's actually doing a fairly good job after Ticonderoga, it's not at all evident in his panicked uh, messages back to Congress and back to Washington. And I think they, they both felt that Schuyler has to go. And so the logical guy to replace him with was Gates. Gates had served in the Northern Department. He was, again, another one of these generals who's very well liked by the militia, which is unusual because Gates is a former British army officer. They tended not to have a whole lot of respect for militia, but he did. And the militia soldiers liked Gates. So he was he was a good fit, um, and he was also a particularly good fit because the situation he found himself in fit his set of skills uh, almost perfectly, like a glove almost. Because um, he gets up there, um, his big challenge is to get the militia to come out to help reinforce the army. New commander, they like Gates, they start coming out to support the army. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, he he has to fight a mainly defensive kind of battle. That was his that was his uh, in his wheelhouse, and so he sets up. He finds a, a great defensive position on Bemis Heights. Uh, actually, it was found by uh, Colonel Kosciuszko, the the, the brilliant um, Polish uh, military engineer who Gates really liked, uh, who was under him. He found finds this great uh, bit of terrain. Uh, so Gates digs in and he waits for Burgoyne's approach. And Burgoyne is going to have to figure out some way to get past this American army that's dug in on Bemis Heights. And that fits his, his set of skills almost perfectly. Later on, he would prove, uh, what, I guess three years later uh, at the Battle of uh, Camden, uh, that when the skill sets uh, required uh, was a little bit different, uh, more of an offensive operation, a little bit more loose, uh, uh, free-flowing operation. That was not his, uh, uh, you know, uh, his his set of skills, and so he failed miserably at that particular. Campaign. Right, and and Gates is a complex person, right? In that, yes. you know, his relationship with Arnold is terrible. Uh, which, 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 well, which, well, it was good before, good before, I mean, right? It, yeah, because they they yeah. fought together in in Canada in 1775, right? Were they in the invasion? Well, they, they 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 had served together, right? Starting in 1775, and then also in 1776, the first British invasion uh, from Canada, where they were able to to uh, push them back. Um, Arnold serves directly under Gates, and they they get along quite well. 
and in fact, when he when Arnold hears that Gates has replaced Schuyler, he writes in this long letter saying, uh, boy, I'm really happy you're you're in charge. This is great. Uh, so he you know, it's they have a they have a falling out because Arnold, this very aggressive guy, he's going, hey, you know, uh, Burgoyne is weak. He's he's weakened as he's come south. Uh, we can let's go out and attack. And Gates, this this defensive minded guy, nope, we're going to sit behind our fortifications. We're going to let them come to us. And so that was that was the start of their their friction there. And in really early September of 1777, before the first big battle right. takes place. And of course, you know, we could we could have a whole discussion about, especially since you've been at West Point, right? That uh, Arnold's name is connected to West Point, although not in the yes. best possible, not in the best no. possible way. <laughs> but um, but related to that uh, is Gates's political, that Gates, Gates is ambitious and Gates gets involved in a uh, discussions about replacing George Washington as commander of the right. army. Right. Right, right. Um, yeah, he, we start seeing Gates and uh, Washington knew each other all the way back from the French and Indian War. So, so they had known each other. They had gotten along pretty well. Uh, Gates, or uh, excuse me, Washington brings him into the army very early on. Uh, he, they they serve well together when they're up in Boston at the very beginning of the revolution. They start having a falling out, though. Gates thinks he knows best. Uh, like a lot of Washington's subordinates, uh, and uh, they start they start having some conflicts. And when Gates moves up to uh, in the spring of 1777, he moves up. He's reassigned up to the Northern Department. Uh, that's when they really start butting heads. Mm -hmm. And um, when Gates is put in charge of the Northern Department, and he relieves Schuyler in uh, August of 1777. He almost all of his reports go directly to Congress and not to his boss, the commander in chief, George Washington. He's basically skirting around Washington the whole time. Washington basically has to beg him to find information, to get mm -hmm. information from him. And that drives Washington crazy. So we start seeing that, you know, that conflict uh, uh, early in September. Uh, well, actually, August and into September of 1777. In fact, when he writes his after action report, uh, after the first battle of Saratoga, the Battle of Freeman's Farm, it goes to Congress. It doesn't go to Washington. Oh. And in fact, when they win and Burgoyne surrenders the army, Washington hears this the news through just rumors. Really? And, Not receive a, yeah. a formal report. Right. right away. And he has, to, he has to actually write Gates saying, uh, it sure would have been nice if I had heard this from you. Interesting, uh, Mr. Subordinate, <laughs> General <laughs> Officer, uh, and 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 of course he wins. Gates wins this huge victory. Washington has just it really since Trenton and Princeton, uh, he's had you know two big losses. He, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Brandywine and Germantown. He's lost the city of Philadelphia. Um, people, you know, members of Congress are looking at that and they're saying, hmm. You know, who should be our commander in chief, the guy who just won this incredibly huge uh, victory mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, actually com uh, capturing an entire British army or the guy who keeps on handing us losses. Uh, so Gates, uh, as, as you mentioned, starts to starts to put out some feelers about that sort of thing, starts talking to officers who are also a little bit disgruntled. And that all gets back to Washington and. 
it's the famous um, Conway, so-called Conway cabal. Conway cabal. Uh, I don't think there was a full-fledged conspiracy personally, but but um, some authors do, some some historians do think that. Right. Uh, but Washington is able to to put it down with very skillful political maneuvering. Well, and I was I was thinking right that Washington's handling of the Conway cabal is not unlike his handling of the Imperial British Army, right? That he doesn't he does not seek a full frontal battle. Um, yes, that good he point. even he he engages in a couple of skirmishes over letters to Congress. Right. Um, he lets his he, he lets his opponent wear himself out to a certain extent and because he doesn't weaken himself when the when his opponents show their own weaknesses, Conway, Mifflin, and Gates, they right. show that not, none of them is really capable of of uh, of supplanting Washington. And then eventually, everybody has to uh, accommodate themselves to the reality that George Washington is not going anywhere. Right. That, that that's a great point, Ron. I wish I had made that point in the book. <laughs> Good job. Well, well, I want you to know I got it from reading the book or thought about it. So, so it was in there somewhere, Kev. Like we'll go with that. No, that's 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 a very good way to put it. I couldn't put it any better. Um, he he handled them brilliantly, uh, really did. Uh, just showed his his uh, sort of infighting ability uh, was, was really top notch. That's top notch. You know, great staff work makes a big difference too, right? It's yeah, sad. yeah, for sure. And that, and when this gets to the you know the other big diplomatic importance of the of the the battle, right? It's is that when the news reaches Paris. Right, the American uh, the American uh, commissioners had been there for quite some time, talking to the French, working out various informal things, but weren't able to nail the French government down on a formal alliance. But things move pretty fast after news of this victory arrives, and why is that? Well, um, I, I think there's a couple. Of th- I think I think the French were were predisposed to want to. To want that alliance, yeah. uh, certainly Vergennes, I think, was just was waiting for. He was hoping that something like this was happen would happen. He was disappointed when they lost Ticonderoga. I mean, that you know, the British were very very quick to tout that news in Paris. You know, say, hey, you know, look at. I mean, we're gonna we're we're gonna beat these guys. They just lost the Gibraltar of North America uh, for Ticonderoga. The Brits do the same thing when they seize Philadelphia. Uh, they make sure that that's a that's a big deal. They go to Virgins and all the the uh, the key uh, French uh, folks and uh, let them know that hey, we've just seen Philadelphia, the American capital. You know, comparing it to what what have what would happen if somebody sees Paris, uh, it's a huge deal. There's no way these guys can win. Uh, but then what Franklin does very very skillfully is he 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 uh, convinces Virgins that hey. Philadelphia is a is a strategic cul-de-sac. It doesn't. In fact, at one point he says, he says, if somebody said, well, uh, you know, Dr. Franklin, um, the uh, General Howe has seized Philadelphia, and he said, no, 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 Philadelphia has seized General Howe, uh, and you know, saying that see, uh, capturing a British army is much more strategically important than than seizing a, a, a city. Who cares? Uh, they didn't. They didn't destroy Washington's army. Washington's army is still intact, and we've just captured a British army. Kind of a big deal. And so, just a couple days after the new, news arrives in Paris on the fourth of December, uh, within a week, Vergennes is already saying, "Hey, let's uh, let's talk some more." Uh, and 
what actually it was yesterday, 245 years ago yesterday, uh, they actually signed the treaty. There you go. And we, and, and for, for the record, right, we're recording this on February the 7th. So that would be on February the 6th, right? February so the 6th, just, right. Just, we should, we don't want to confuse our listeners. You know, oh, right. right. I, I was, Absolutely. I was thinking about, you know, your reference to, uh, Franklin's comment about Philadelphia, uh, Unrelated to the Revolutionary War, it makes me think of there's a line in Casablanca when Rick is sitting at a table with the Nazi officers and and one of them says, are you one of the people who can't imagine uh, the Nazis in your beloved Paris? And he says, well, it's not, never really was my Paris. And, and one of the other officers says, what about if we enter New York? Yes. And and Rick says, well, uh, well, Colonel, I think there are parts of New York I would advise you not to try to invade. Yes, yes. Um, Great line. That, uh, that you know, perhaps Franklin was thinking about Philadelphia that way, too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it could be. It could be. But um, so Saratoga makes such a great story in part because, right, we can we can put it together, you know, as a as a turning point. It's it's a turning point on the battlefield. It has immediate political and diplomatic repercussions. Um do you think is there anything about Saratoga that uh, uh, that our listeners or that let's say a, a, an American reader of who is interested in history that you think that they should know that you think is underappreciated about the Battle of Saratoga? Sure, I, I, I think it, several things actually. Um, first of all, I, I think most when most people think of Saratoga, they think of the two big battles at the end. The this the 19th of September and the 7th of October, back to back, two big battles, Burgoyne surrenders. But I, I think uh, in order to understand the Saratoga campaign, you have to understand it in its, its entirety. I mean, the campaign lasted for almost six months. Uh, it, it started in, Burgoyne starts heading south from Canada uh, in, in June. Uh, June of 1777. There were 11 battles and campaign or battles and engagements over the course of this uh, five to six months. There were two sieges uh, during this campaign. There were river crossings. There were multiple major military movements during this time. And it played out over hundreds and hundreds of square miles, most of which were in the uh, Northern American wilderness. Uh, it included um, uh, Native Americans were heavily involved uh, in this campaign, especially in the um, the campaign out by Fort Stanwix, uh, which is which is part of this entire campaign. Um, so all of these events are happening while, of course, Washington is starting to undertake the Philadelphia campaign. So there's these multiple events going on, and they're all interconnected in so many ways. And I think. Um, Anybody who reads about, and, and that's one of the reasons why the book became as extensive as it was, because I wanted to cover the entire campaign, not just focus on, on the battles, uh, and, and place it in its political and strategic context. And I think there, there's other things. The, the whole notion of distance and scope, uh, when you think about it, when the, the British are trying to, at the strategic level, they're trying to micromanage the war, they're 3,000 miles away. I mean, it takes a message on a good day or a, a good message, six weeks to go one way, uh, oftentimes eight weeks, sometimes more. And so if you exchange a message, uh, if you say, you know, if uh, Lord George Germain, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, the, the British uh, cabinet member who's responsible for basically managing the war, he said, General Howe, I want you to seize Philadelphia. 
and he sends off that message, it might be two months before he gets a reply saying, ah, I really can't because X, Y, Z, whatever. Oh, okay, then you need to do this. Well, by that time, the campaigning season is over and you have to start thinking now about next year's campaign. So there's there's the distances are something you, you have to get your arms around when you're talking about this campaign. And then other thing, you know, it's 300 miles from the battlefields of Saratoga to where Washington is campaigning. And a message can only go as fast as a man on a horse can ride. And so there's 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 issues there with communications uh, and things. So I think people have to understand that they have to understand, I think, Washington's central role that we already talked about uh, this whole notion of strategy. I think, you know, once we all t- always want to talk about the battles, especially those final two battles. But the only reason it ended up the way it did was because the British created a really fatally flawed military strategy six months before it even happened. Actually, longer than that, about eight months before it even even happened. Um, so I think that's important. You have to understand the, the, the roots of the strategy development and how that played out and why, why that strategy fell apart. Uh, and I think that's important, and, and my book talks about that. Uh, the leadership piece we talked about is central to all this. Um, and then there's all sorts of myths. There's all sorts of Saratoga myths that I think um, I try to bust some of those myths uh, during the course of the, of the book. Well, good. Well, and and I encourage all listeners to pick up a copy of The Complete Victory, Saratoga and the American Revolution, so that they can learn uh, which of those myths got busted and, and also can learn more about uh, this battle and its importance. Kevin Weddle, uh, we could go on and on, but I'm afraid we're all out of time for today. Thanks so much for joining us on A Better Peace. Well, thanks, Ron. It was a real honor to be with you today. It was a lot of fun. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice, because after a conversation like this, really, why wouldn't you want to subscribe to A Better Peace? And after you have done so, please rate and review this podcast, because that's how other people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, I look forward to welcoming you next time. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Grenary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.